Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone dragged into war has a story to tell. For Wally Williams, there are many stories, progressively more terrifying. An extraordinary tale that begins when, as a teenager, he's sent off to meet the Japanese. So you signed up pretty young? Yeah, 17. I hadn't long left school, to be honest with you, and uh, the war came, and of course, all young blacks thought it was their duty to go to the war. And... Uh, my father was a returned soldier from Gallipoli and uh, he wouldn't give me permission to go on the AIF. So I joined the permanent army. And of course, being naive, I didn't know what the permanent army consisted of. Anyhow, I was in that for a while and, uh, and it was quite good and I got the hang of things and then I decided I wanted to go to the AIF. So. I eventually got permission from my father and in I went. By early 1942, Japanese forces were sweeping south towards Singapore, supposedly a British fortress. But that's not how Wally and his fellow diggers found it. And we were on the northwest coast at Cranji, and it was just virgin country. Uh, there was no defences. We had to, whatever defences that, that, that were, that we had to make ourselves. And uh, of course, the, we were on in, intensive shell fire for oh, all one afternoon from about two o'clock to eight o'clock at night. You couldn't move, just lying on the ground. And, uh, once, once that barrage lifted, well, that was the indication to us that the Japs were coming across the water. We'd be down there for about a week before the, the, uh, the Japs invaded Singapore. Uh, and we thought, well, we were going to get a, the, the Japs were going to get a pacing, but it never eventuated. They, the artillery, unfortunately, uh, well, I think the demand on the artillery was that intense that they just couldn't keep up with it. And I think ammunition was short. So it didn't, 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 didn't take any effect. It was a bit of a blow to us, but uh, eventually the, the Japs conquered the place. And we travelled then all night until we got down into Singapore itself, but it was was a hopeless situation when we got into Singapore. 
the Brits were, they would they 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 couldn't understand that they were going to be defeated. Uh, and the women used to come out in evening dress and go to the local golf club and dance at night and strike me around here with us up the road engaging the Japs. That's how it was. They, they, they just couldn't comprehend that they were going to get beaten. And that was all about it. In that time, what was your sense of well, your possibilities? I mean, it must have seemed almost like a hopeless cause. Well, you see, I remember I was under a, I was under a, a coconut grove, they call it. It's a, a clump of coconut trees. And I was reading the, the Singapore Times. And it had big headlines on Singapore is as well defended as Britain. And we all said, well, God help Britain, because we had no defence, whatever. There's none there on the island. Uh, we couldn't understand that because the English had been there for many years and there was not, nothing, not even a slit trench dug, there was nothing. Pretty poor show all around, but well, I never sensed that, uh, never thought of a capitulation, to be honest. But uh, it happened and that, that was it. Wally and his surviving mates had been captured and they're about to find out what it meant to be a prisoner of war under the Japanese Imperial Army. Everybody went to Changi. All Australians, and uh, from Changi, the various working parties were uh, made up and left Changi to go to the various locations, which we didn't know, of course. And they told lies to us and said, uh, I went away with A Force, which was the first force to go up, to go from uh, Changi, and we went up into Burma, and they told us that uh, we didn't need medical supplies, we were going to the land of milk and honey and all this business, and of course it proved out to be different. Uh, they gave no medical supplies whatsoever, or very little, if any. Food was scarce, mainly rice, that was a diet. Most blokes couldn't cop it, but you had to. You had to either eat or you'd you, you die. And that's all there was about it. But you mentioned Burma, and I want to try to understand. What were you doing in Burma? What were you made to We went into Burma, and Burma was the start of the railway, to build a Burma railway from Burma into Thailand. And from Thailand, the other end was working towards Burma. And we met on the border. When the line was completed, it, it finished on the border of uh, Burma and Thailand. And they had two working parties, and they were working towards the border like this. The Thais coming, Thai people coming this way, Australians in Thailand, Australians in Burma. And as we went, got closer and closer, conditions got worse. 
and also the working conditions. The, the, the camps were atrocious, rot, stinking mess, you know. Oh, you got no idea. Anyhow, we just had to persevere. And of course, when cholera broke out, that was a death sentence if you copped that. You got no hope of getting over that. I mean, the jungle there and that, that kept you, had no, no, what, there was no way of escaping or trying to escape. There's plenty of blokes tried, but got recaptured and got shot, see? So that was early in the piece. We went in, when, when we got on the ship at Singapore, we went to Lower Burma. There were 3,000, 3,500 blokes left Changi. And uh, we dropped three locations in Lower Burma, Victoria Point, Magui, and Tavoy. And they dropped a 1,000 off each, roughly there. And we worked on those, at those places, resurfacing airfields, making them weatherproof. That's prior to the uh, railway. But the railway was uh, well engineered and of course we used to have to put our wits against them. Uh, they used to come and they'd, we'd be in a gang of say 10 blokes and they'd say, all right, it was a square metre per man. Doesn't sound much. They'd mark it out put a peg in there, mark it down here, put a peg in there and come back. And we had to dig all that out and that was our quota for the day. Well, invariably the Jap would, the guard, he would sit under a tree and in the afternoon he'd be stinking hot. He'd go to sleep. So when he went to sleep, we'd hop up and grab the peg out of there and bring it back and drive it in and the same one here. And then when he woke up, oh, he say, oh, really good. You both have been working real well. We say, oh, yes, you know. So he never, they never woke up. But it was hard work. There was no coal, of course. I mean, all the, all the, all the steam engines were uh, fed by timber, which we had to cut. And, uh, stack alongside the railway. You must have seen men, you must have seen your mates dying outside Singapore, dying on the on this work in the jungle. Oh yeah. On the see well I can tell you a little story about we had a band when we went away. And it was a composite band from the three battalions. And this bloke, I knew, he was out of the second iron band. He played the cornet. He had, people would die. He would play the last post. Well, as I mentioned before about cholera, well, the death rate went up to blazes. And, of course, he used to play the last post whenever we had a burial. Well, there were that many burials. Everybody was getting fed, of them. fed up with the last post. It was, it was uh, 
deteriorating the men. The men was getting on their nerves. So I had to cut it out and make it play. He played the last post at sunset. But, uh, oh, yes. The collar are terrible. We used to have to put them at a little tent, or rig a tent out in the jungle, and, and these blokes would carry the fellas out there that were crook, put them in the tent. You couldn't have anybody looking after them because it's uh, contagious, see? And somebody would have to take them food and all that sort of thing, but they had no hope, no hope of getting out of it at all. So when you hear the last post now, what does it... Oh, well, it's... Uh, I don't know, it touches, it touches you, put it that way, you know. I'd never forget it. Because I couldn't... See, I've got... Today, I mean, there's certain Japanese, there's even Japanese that work here. Um, I've got no animosity against those poor devils. I mean, they were indoctrinated and... Propaganda kept them going in Japan. Things were very, very bad. When the railway was completed, I was in a camp right up on the border. It was the worst camp I'd ever been in. And they opened it up and called a hospital camp. But there's no hospital around here. It's just an ordinary hut, you know. We had that roofs so and that. Very primitive. And only for, only for our doctors. And surgeons, we would have been worse off, you know. I could tell you a story about this surgeon. We were sitting around one day, half a dozen of us, and he said, uh, well, boys, he said, I'd like you to come down this afternoon. I've got to take Joe Blow's leg off. Okay. And we said, oh, well, I don't think we could be in that. Oh, no, 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 he said, there's no blood and guts. He said, it'll be okay. I'll, I'll give you all the instructions about the operation that went, see. So we went down. Uh, the operating table was made out of bamboo. The young bloke was lying there. We had no anaesthetic. And he said, well, all we got here, he said, is a chemist. He said, he's uh, Indonesian. And he goes into the jungle and he selects various things. I don't know. He said, this, this is the surgeon said. I don't know what he does, whether he boils it up or what he does. But anyway, he said, it becomes a, a sort of injection. And I give it to him so it, it blocks him from the waist down. He said, he won't feel anything. I've got to be quick, he said, because I've got to do this operation, he said the same as they did in the Crimea War. Exactly the same. And he had three artery clamps, which are three arteries in your leg. And he started it and he cut the skin around. That was okay. And then he rolls it up like a woman's stocking. And I'd never seen underneath the skin of my life and it's all yellow fat, see? I looked at it and I thought, God, you know. So anyway, he gets down to the nitty-gritty and he's got to take the fellow's leg off. So the only saw that we had was in the cookhouse. And it was 
very fine tooth like a hacksaw blade. And he had an orderly, and he said to this orderly bloke, he said, he said, have you got the saw? Yes, he said, Colonel, I've got the saw from the kitchen. And the Colonel said, I hope you wiped it. And everybody laughed. And the poor bloke was laying back there. We used to smoke in those days, and I think at that time we were smoking Burmese cigars, and they made it rolled out of the leaf. And Coates, the, uh, was doing the operation, he had one in his mouth. And he's, uh, he's looking over this kid, and the kid looks up at him and he said, the young boy said to him, Colonel, he said, that's not too hygienic, is he? Because there's no hygiene. The operating theatre was like out here, only in the dirt, see? And he said, what do you mean, lad? He said, that... Ash, he said, you got in the end of your cigar. He said, it's leaning right over me. And the old Casey picked the cigar out of his mouth like that, and he went bang, bang, bang. He said, lad, there is no germs on that. <laughs> Everybody couldn't help laughing, you know. But uh, anyhow, he did the job and cut the bloke's leg off and and then he made the pad you know, with the skin and all. Well, it was he rolled it all down, padded it up, sewed it up. And he said to the, boy, to the young bloke, he said, look, he said, I've got to put two wicks in this. He said, to drain it. And he said, and that's going to be your worst part when I've got to take them out. He said, that will be the most painful thing. And apparently that's the way it was done. Whether the kids survived, I don't know. I was a good swimmer in those days. I used to take a lot of these legless blokes down the river and get them to swim and all that. But, uh, you know, life was fairly tough. There's no doubt about that. You were, you were put on a ship to be transported to Japan. What uh, happened? Well... I was in Vietnam, and then it came, it was the night, I think it was the night before we started to go back to, we had to go back to Singapore to pick up a ship to go to Japan. And uh, I got toothache, I'll never forget it, I got toothache, I knew it was bad, it drove me nuts. And all we had was a doctor, and uh, I said to him, I said, look, Rowley, I said, if have you ever pulled a tooth? And he said, not since I went to Sydney University. I said, well, you're going to pull one now. He said, but I haven't got anything. He said, oh, I've got some pullers. I said, well, that's all you'll have to, you'll have to do with that. So I sat in a chair and a bloke held me down with a... And he said, Where, which tooth is it? And of course, being naive, if he, like, if he was a dentist, a dentist would have tapped the tooth, see? You'd have gone... That would have been the tooth. But I said, I think, I think it's this one. And he gets out of it and bang, pulls it out. See? I said, sorry, Rowley, wrong tooth. It must be the one next to it. So he gets out of the tooth the next to it. Pull, twist, pull. The bloody tooth broke off. The tooth broke off and the root was in the, in the gum. And why I am saying that 
there's a case in point where we had no disinfectant, we had nothing. And I came home, when I came home from the war, I went to Manila, and the Yanks had Manila. And the bloke said, oh, come on here. He said, oh, I'll check your teeth. And it was the best setup I've ever seen in dentistry of my life. And I said to the bloke, said, oh, your teeth are pretty good. He said, I told him, I said, I've got a root in here. I said, under the gum. The gum's growing over it. Oh, well, he said, we'll take an x-ray. He took an x-ray. He said, yes. Oh, no trouble. He said, well, get that out. They took it out, and I got an infection. And there we are. I'm on my way home, and I'm, which is not that far from Australia. And this thing come up my neck like an egg. Oh, God. And the two head surgeons, dental surgeons, came and sat on my bed, and I heard one bloke say to the other, I think we'll have to operate. I'm thinking, oh, God, just a man's luck. And then one bloke said, I, in a huddle, he says to this bloke, ask him. And so he, this fellow said, Mr. Williams, he said, would you be prepared if, to sign a paper that we can treat this with penicillin? Well, I'd never heard of penicillin, see? I said, what's penicillin? And he explained it the best he could. I said, yeah, I'll sign it. So I signed it, and I, I copped it about every three hours they injected me, and the thing went down, went away, which I was very lucky, very thankful for. But I'm jumping the gun a bit, as you say. When the line was completed, I was in, I was in Vietnam, and we're okay. We go to Singapore, and we get on the ship. Well, of course, they're vastly overcrowded, and away we go, we get in the South China Sea, and we ran into a pack of subs, about six American submarines, the 13 ships in the convoy, and they sunk the lot. And our ship got two torpedoes in it, and it was the only ship to float. Well, it's a, a bit of a quandary. You don't know whether to go off the ship or to hang around on the ship or what. So I had a mate who was off for Perth, and that had already been sunk, and that's how he became a prisoner of war, and I met him up in Burma. I used to go to school with him at Northbridge in the primary school, and anyway, I said to him, listen, Max, I said, you've been through this. What are we going to do? Stay here or get off the ship? He said, I think we better go. So they had some rafts on they cut them, they had ropes hanging down like this, and they threw them over the ship, and you could go in the water and hang on to them. You couldn't put anyone on because they'd sink. Just like you could hang the rope to get a breather. So anyway, we went off, went off the ship, and we floated around, and all, and all the currents and everything else, I suppose, all day, till about four o'clock in the afternoon. We went off about... Uh, say six o'clock in the morning. Left the ship at six and around about it was starting to get around about five o'clock and we started to look like drifting into this burning oil and we're both good swimmers and we could see the ship that was on the horizon looked about that high. Must have been a couple of miles away. So we decided we'd go back to the ship. So we swam, swam back in, in bits and pieces and we got discharged 
by the Gap Corvettes running around dropping death charges. And uh, that was that was an experience in itself. Did you make it back onto the ship? Yes, went back onto the ship. The guys that were left on the raft? They all perished. All perished. All drowned. Majority of them. Some got, some were lucky. Some got picked up by several of the Japanese, uh, the American submarines. Uh, and they were taken to Saipan. They got out of the war ten months before we did, see. And we went back on the ship and we launched an old boat. It was an old, oh God, it was in terrible shape. We had to patch it and muck around and we were damn lucky to get, get it off. But we got it off, and we got onto this thing, and that was our salvation. That's the thing that saved us. And we drifted, uh, you know, like once we got off the boat, we drifted all together, and uh, a ship came around in the afternoon, picked the Japs up. They wouldn't pick us up, uh, which wasn't a very nice feeling, but and away they went, and of course... We all drifted in the one current one night, and in the morning there was a couple of Japanese uh, boats that they'd left. We swam over, brought them back, and split. There was about sixty blokes in this old boat. Uh, that was the, that cleaned up all the blokes who were on the ship. Were left on the ship. No, no one that was on the ship lost their life. Luckily, the two torpedoes missed the holes that they were in. One smacked into the edge of the rim, the other one went into the bow of the ship. And uh, all the POWs were... Nobody nobody got killed in the explosion at all. Uh, and I think that was one of the luckiest episodes of my POW days. Although... When we went to Japan, we went to uh, Kawasaki, which is a, like a suburb of Yokohama, which is not that far from Tokyo. And of course, the Yanks started bombing the place then, and every night, mate, you got buildings like this were going up left, right, and centre. Out of fire, 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 firestorms you've never seen in your life. Anything like it, you know. We were in the camp there one time and they put us up on the roof. They all had tile roofs. And they got blankets and they soaked the blankets, threw them over the tiles to stop the embers going under. Didn't do any good when we got up there. You could see the fire, fire making a hell of a noise, roaring, coming towards you. We said, oh well, this is it. Not going to get out of this. And for some reason the the uh, Jap in charge of the camp, he opened the gates, and of course there was a heap of Japs outside. I don't know what he said to them, and he swung a samurai sword around his head, yelled out of them, and they parted like that, and he told us, go. Well, we got out to the camp, all right, but we didn't know where to go. You know, I mean, like Plunk and a bloke in Sydney. You wouldn't know whether to run up George Street or down Pitt Street. You wouldn't have a clue, see? So some of these guards took off, and we followed the guards. We thought, well, we're on the home turf. And, well, oh, we ran. 
of bloody mile over bridges and God knows what you see. Japanese women with kids, holding kids in the water. You knew they were going to go because the fire feeds on the on the oxygen, you know. And they were gone. They, they had no hope. And we ran and ran and ran and then we come to this sort of a village and both sides of the street were alight. And we thought, God, these chaps have gone off their nut. We run straight into it like this. Both sides of the street are coming towards us. And they turned right sharp, right down a narrow street or alleyway and down we went and fell in a swamp. We stayed there all night. And in the morning, I'm not kidding, you could say, stand at Palm Beach RSL and look towards North Sydney, all flat country, flat as this. And now all that was left was the bitumen roads and that's all. Not a telegraph pole, not a house, fire engine, you name it. There was nothing else. That's all that was left was the road. And these Japs took us back to where our camp was. I, I wouldn't have found it. The only, the only place you could recognise was a cookhouse with a big steel, like inverted tin hats where they used to cook the rice in. How and many so, times, Walter, do you reckon you've cheated death? Oh, God, I'm going to count it up. But I was very lucky. I guess I was lucky, you know. I was in the thick of it. I'm, I'm not trying to blow me trumpet. Don't, don't, don't get that for one moment, but... I was I was lucky, and the other blokes that were with me, they they survived it. Uh, they were lucky too. But the biggest fear I think I have had was in the bombing raids. That's the thing that put the breeze up me more than anything. And uh, we never had any uh, decent sort of shelters. The B twenty nines, oh god, you could see them at, at night. The fires were that fierce. They were up 30,000 feet. You could look up and you could see the planes. The silver, and from the reflection of the fire, you could see the planes going across the sky. Now, that was the biggest, the biggest thing. Uh, in, in fact, I, I was lucky. I'll tell you how lucky I was. Say, a couple of weeks before, I got transferred from Kawasaki to Nagata, which is on the inland seaside on the main island, onshore. And we'd only been gone about a couple of weeks, and where we worked in this factory, we knew it was going to get bombed because they couldn't miss, and they bombed it. And of course, about 20 boats lost their lives that night. But I just happened to miss it, you know, I was dead lucky. If I'd have stayed there, well, I would have gone through that, but thank heavens I didn't. But uh, the war finished there for me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wally had survived battle, prison, shipwreck, disease, and firebombing. But he says the hardest part was yet to come. What was it like to come home? Do you remember what it felt like to come? Well, I'll tell you something. I came home. Uh, I met my father. My mother, mother died when I was a young boy. And uh, I met my relatives. I went out to... Uh, I came home in a, in a Catalina flying boat. And to cut a long story short, I picked it up in Darwin and I went to Cairns. We left Cairns at four o'clock in the morning to fly down here to Rose Bay, and it took ten hours. And there was only about five of us in the plane. We landed at Rose Bay, a bloke came out in a little launch, we got in the launch, took us to the main wharf, main wharf. And then there wasn't a soul around, not a soul. The blokes were saying, what are we going to do? One bloke said, we got any money. We had no money. And he said, well, I think the best thing, we better get the next bus and get out to Paddington. That's where we joined up, see? So all right, so we get the bus, double-decker bus out to Paddington. And didn't didn't cost us anything because travel was free for big servicemen. So I get out there and I had the worst feeling of all my life and it's bugged me all my life and I met my relatives and everybody and nobody spoke nobody said good on you mate good on you Walter please you go home and all this not a bloody thing and I thought gosh what have I done what have I done wrong you know and I and they're not, a, like my relatives weren't even speaking to me or anything. And I thought, God, what's happened here? And that was the worst experience of all my life was when I got home. And I, I never got over it. I've carried it still in my heart. It's still there. Why? And it was only recently, when I say recently, yes, that I found out, well, I... Well, the story that is told, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I think it must be. That the relatives of a POW were informed by the army not to discuss the war in any form. They thought that it would upset us, see? And all we were looking for was a bit of compassion, you know? And, oh, jeez, mate, that, that, that really rocked me, mate. I, I've never got over it. I, I still, still I carry that now. I'll probably carry it till I die, but that's, that, that was, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to handle. And, uh... They thought they were doing the right thing by you by not talking about it. Well, they thought so. They'd been directed by the army not to discuss it, see? I never knew that at the time. 
It took me years before some bloke said to me, you know, of course, that's the reason. I said, what was that? He said, they were informed not to, not to discuss the war. So must have felt incredibly lonely, not very uh, pardon? Must have felt incredibly lonely. Oh, it is. It is. Not to be able to talk to those. No, people. not me. I don't mind telling you. And I never had the opportunity to really talk to my father because life went on and he died. And I never ever discussed it with him, never. And I could never work that out. Seeing he was a, like a, an ex-serviceman from the First World War, I thought he would have said to me, well, how did it go or something, you know. And uh, he never did. He never ever got down to the nitty-gritty. But anyhow, that's, that's life, you know. That's all, that's all I had. Were you able to tell your wife what happened? No, no. I never discussed it with her, really. I knew, I, I, I knew something was wrong with me, you know. But I just had to battle it out. That's all. It took me a long, long while, but eventually I think I've, I've conquered it, you know. Cause I'd, I'd never get over it, but. I got it to a stage where I could handle it. That's about it. I know I was wrong. I used to get on the grog and all that business, but uh, I couldn't, you know. I eventually got over it. What uh, does Anzac Day mean for you? Well, it, mean, oh, it means a lot to me in... in uh, Pay my respect to the, all the mates that went. We'll say, okay, a battalion is roughly a thousand men. And we had a couple of stouses with the Japs and we lost about 600. And they got to be replaced. So the 16, say 1600 blokes, a bit more, went through the battalion. And to think that I'm only one of, one of about two or three blokes that, out of the whole battalion, left. That's what it means. They're all gone, you know. Uh, not they've, they've lived their life, a full life, but it's hard to take, you know. When there's all the blokes that I ever know, I haven't got any mates left. They're all gone. That, uh, which is a bit, bit tough, you know. At 98 years old, Wally Williams' mind is still sharp and his memory is still strong. Memories of that incredible time in our history and all the suffering. The youngest of the veterans of those wars that shaped our world are now approaching 100 years old. There'll be a time soon when these stories can no longer be heard firsthand. It is a privilege, almost an historic duty, to hear them while we still can. I'm Hugh Rimmington. Thanks for listening.